0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a black history moment with Bo. And I hope this day finds you content and getting ready for those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. You know, a few people have asked me, how come I do not do commercials? Well, I'm not in this for monetary reasons. This is my legacy. This is what I have to leave my children and my children's children the ability to hear my voice and gain a little knowledge. I'm not a Pulitzer Prize winner. I don't have a hall at some university n- named after me. I'm in nobody's Hall of Fame. This is just me. You see, I don't know the key to success but the key to failure I know is trying to please everybody Now that being said I'm going to introduce you to some cases that I know you've never heard of that propelled the civil rights movement So let's take a few moments and slip into darkness the first case that i'm going to talk about is that of rosa lee ingram a mother of 12 and she became the center of one of the most controversial capital punishment cases seen in u.s history in november 1947 A white 64-year-old sharecropper named John Ed Stratford confronted Rosa. He shared the adjoining land with her and accused her of letting her livestock roam freely on his land. After she reminded him that the land and livestock were owned by the landlord, he hit her with his gun and her sons ran to her defense. John Stratford died from multiple blows to the head. Rosa and her four sons were then arrested. Now, while it first appeared confirmation occurred over the livestock, later accounts suggest that Stratford repeatedly sexually harassed Rosa and she objected to his advances. This tension then sparked the fight that resulted in his death. Consequently, Rosa's defense team argued that her sons acted in self-defense, protecting their mother. The trial, held in Ellaville, Georgia, only lasted one day. Though two of her sons overall were released, an all-white jury sentenced Rosa and her other two sons to death by electric chair. Resultantly, the country erupted in protests owing to the hastiness of sentencing and the secrecy surrounding the decision made. Thankfully, as a response to these protests, their sentences were commuted to life in 1948. A second wave of protests occurred after Georgia's Supreme Court upheld their life sentences. Civil rights groups felt extenuating circumstances should have been taken into account, such as the fact Mr. Stratford had sexually assaulted Rosa. However, this was to little avail. In 1955, the Ingrams were refused parole once more, and no reason was given. In 1959, Rosa and her sons were finally granted parole, and Rosa lived in Atlanta until her death in 1980. This case became important to civil rights activists. Rosa Lee Ingram helped to highlight the specific forms of oppression poor black women faced. The case also contributed to the wider discussion of white men's sexually violence against black women and what happened if they rejected their advances. Black progressive women became the leaders of the campaign to free the Ingrams, once more pushing the agenda of black women's rights to the forefront of global discussions. Gertrude Perkins, 1949, Montgomery, Alabama In Montgomery, Alabama, in 1949, a 25-year-old black woman named Gertrude Perkins was walking home from a bus stop when she was confronted by two uniformed white policemen. These men forced her into the marked police car Drove her to a secluded area and raped her. After several hours, the policeman returned her to the bus stop and warned her to keep quiet. Gertrude faced the dilemma of whether to inform the police of an atrocity committed by their own men. Instead of going home that night, she headed to Reverend Shay's house a minister of the AME Zion Church. He wrote down everything she said, and a radio address hit the country early the next morning with details of the event. Shea then escorted Gertrude to the police station so she could report her crime and they could arrest her assailants. The police, however, refused to hold a lineup for her to identify her attackers. Further, the police commissioner refused to provide details of who was on duty that night. As the word got out, several black activist organizations formed the Citizens Committee for Gertrude Perkins. Citywide protests eventually ensued. White officials, however, dismissed Gertrude's case and the rape charges as fictitious. When Gertrude finally got her day in court, she looked a far cry from the drunken, illiterate hussy that white locals had made her out to be. However, as with the previous two cases, an all-white jury, all-male, refused to indict anyone claiming there was no evidence of rape in the case. While most Black Americans were understandably frustrated by the outcome of the case, many were pleased with the unrest their protests yielded. Furthermore, it was one of the first times in the city that ministers were also shaken up. This collective action showed that Black people in the town would protest ill-treatment of their race and the wider miscarriage of justice. Claudette Colvin, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. Most people have heard of Rosa Parks, but none have heard of Claudette Colvin. On the 2nd of March, 1955, nine months prior to Rosa Parks, 15-year-old Claudette Coven became a little-known but pioneering figure in the civil rights movement. After refusing to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, police arrested the young girl. A member of the NAACP Youth Council and actively learning about civil rights movement, Claudette was on her way home from the segregated Booker T. Washington High School. Conventions held that if the bus became so crowded that the white seats at the front half of the bus were filled and a white person was standing, then African Americans were supposed to get up from the seats at the front and move to the back. If there were no free seats, then African Americans had to stand. On the 2nd of March, a white woman got on the bus and was left standing. The driver, Robert Clear, told Coven and three other black women to move to the back of the bus, but Colvin refused. After several requests, Coven repeatedly refused and the driver called the police. She was then handcuffed, forcibly removed from the bus and arrested by two policemen. She began shouting that her constitutional rights were being violated. A juvenile court case convicted Coven of violating segregation laws, assault, and disturbing the peace. The court issued her a fine and sparked community outrage. Her reverend bailed her out and told her that she brought the revolution to Montgomery. Together with four other plaintiffs, Claudette Coven became a part of the Browder v. Gay 1956. The case determined bus segregation in Montgomery was unconstitutional. Despite going all the way to the federal Supreme Court, the court upheld the decision and forced the state to end bus segregation permanently. This helped add further teeth to the Brown versus Board of Education decision that ultimately desegregated schools. James Thompson and David Simpson The Kissing Case 1958, Monroe, North Carolina In 1958, Monroe, North Carolina Two young African-American boys were charged with rape. What was their crime? Kissing a white girl of a similar age on the cheek. The young girl, Sissy Marcus, told her mother she kissed nine-year-old Jane Thompson and seven-year-old David Simpson on the cheek. Her mother became furious and phoned the police explaining how the boys raped her daughter local officials unlawfully detained the two young boys for a week they refused to allow their parents visitation and refused to allow legal counsel in an attempt to extract a confession the police beat both the boys and threatened them with further injury After spending three months in jail, juvenile judge Hampton Price charged and convicted the boys of molestation. Both boys were sentenced to reform school, ideally until the age of 21. The wider context of this case helps explain, though not justify the severity of their sentencing. With the end of World War II, Many black men served the United States during the war and resented the idea they would then return home and submit to being a second-class citizen. Owing to the complexity of the contemporary period, no judge in North Carolina would overrule Price for fear of generating further unrest during this volatile time. Members of the local Ku Klux Klan burned crosses into the lawns of the boys' family houses, and some even shot at the house. The boys' mothers were fired from their jobs, and the NAACP had to relocate them to nearby towns to help ensure their safety. After a photograph of the boys with bruising appeared showing them reuniting with their mother, an international outcry took place. Demonstrations occurred all over the U.S., and the U.S. government suffered international embarrassment. And to make matters worse, in February 1959, North Carolina officials requested that the boys' mothers sign a waiver to release their children. Signing, however, admitted the boys were guilty of the charges. Consequently, both refused. Two days later, though, after three months in detention, the governor pardoned both boys without conditions or explanations. To this day, neither the city nor the state have apologized to the boys for their treatment. Can we say Jim Crow, my friends? Here's another story, my friends. And her name was Betty Jean Owens. In 1959, Tallahassee, Florida. On the 2nd of May, 1959... Betty Jean Owens sat in a car with two African-American men and one other African-American female. All were students at Florida A&M University. Four white men, William Collinsworth, Ollie Stodemeyer, David Beakles, and Patrick Scarborough approached the car at Jake Gaither Park armed with switchblades and shotguns, the men ordered all of them out of the car. The black men were forced to kneel and then made drive away. The two black women were left with these four white men. One of the women, Edna Richesons, broke free of the men and ran into a nearby park, leaving Betty Jean Owens alone. Driving her to the edge of town, the men subsequently raped her seven times. During this time, the three other African-American students that were in the car with her went to the police station to report the evening's events. The officer that night, 19-year-old Joe Cook Jr., surprisingly, called for backup, and searched for Owens. A chase with the assailant's car took place and they were eventually pulled over. Owens was bound and gagged on the back seat floor. Police then arrested the four white men and took them to jail. They joked and laughed all the way, sure that nobody would care what they had done. All men confessed in writing to having abducted Betty at gunpoint and raping her. When students at a and heard what had happened, groups began to plan protests to demand justice for Owens. As a result of these protests, wide media coverage and a threat to boycott classes Judge W. Walker called together a grand jury into special sessions four days after the attack on the 6th of May, 1959. More than 200 black spectators entered the courtroom that day to watch the trial. All four men pleaded innocent, making a jury trial mandatory. This became the first time in Florida that white defendants charged with raping black women were sent to jail to await their trial. On the 12th of June 1959, Betty Jean Owens told the jury and 400 witnesses what happened that evening. The defense tried to present the men as respectable and characterized Owens as a horror that wanted sex. The jury found the men guilty but asked for recommendations for mercy. This latter part of the sentence ensured the four men would not face the electric chair. They were, however, sentenced to life in prison. Five years later, David Beagles was paroled. Four years after his release he tracked down a black American woman that he thought was Betty Jean Owens. He murdered her and buried her in a shallow grave. It turns out, however, he murdered a woman named Betty Jean Robinson Houston, a different lady altogether. The ordeal faced by Betty Jean Owens presented another key turning point in the rights of black women to reclaim their bodies. While it showed a lot of progress in that white men were now accountable for their actions against white women, there was still progress to be made as it appeared only a black man would gain the death penalty for rape. Overall, though, local issues and a political mobilized African-American middle class combined with media attention, created pressure for change. So there you have it, my friends. A few cases that I'm sure you have never heard of, but they are our hidden history, dragged out of the darkness into the light. And that music tells me that it is once again that time But before I go, I will leave you with this message. Strong black women aren't just born. They are made of the storm they were forced to walk through. Until next time, my friends, it's been my honor.